they're going to know your pet. You know, they're going to have that warm personal touch because they've been seeing your pet for quite a while and they know maybe a little bit about what you like to do on the weekends or they may know, you know, what is the funny things that your dog does or that he ate a foreign body last year and that was dramatic. Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers, where we help you help your dog with cancer. Hello, friend. I'm Molly Jacobson, and today on Dog Cancer Answers, we're talking about chemotherapy. Many dogs with cancer end up getting chemotherapy from an oncologist, but your general practice vet might also offer it. Doing chemotherapy does require special equipment and safety measures, so it isn't for the faint of heart, but some brave vets add it to their long list of services. Joining us today is one of those brave vets, Dr. Kristen Lester. Dr. Lester is a member of our editorial team for dogcancer.com. She's a veterinarian with a special interest in oncology. Dr. Lester, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Molly. Absolutely. We are so pleased to talk to you today because you have very specific experience that I think the lay people listening to our podcast and the veterinarians who tune in to our podcast will be interested in. You are a general practice vet with a special interest in oncology who actually does chemotherapy in your general practice. So tell me a little bit about how that happened, how you got into that. Well, so it was very organic. I graduated about 17 years ago. And, you know, one of the things that was really um, impressive about going through veterinary school at that time, I specifically remember my oncology block and, you know, going in and just talking with the specialists there. And, you know, something that's so sad, like cancer and it just it can be very, very hard and, and difficult. Their attitudes about it were so positive and celebratory. And, you know, not a day went by where we didn't give a certificate or, you know, high fives because a pet ended up achieving something, whether it was remission or their final chemo or, you know, just did really, really well with their treatments. And so I left that block with this positivity about it and, you know, came away with such a, a good experience. Where did you go to school? I went to Louisiana State University, right. which is where I'm from originally. So yeah, it was just a good experience with that block. So then I graduated and for the first three or four years of my career, I don't really remember doing a whole lot of oncology or chemotherapy at that point, I was just discovering what it was like to be a new veterinarian and, you know, <laughs> learning how to spay a dog in less than an hour, you know, or, <laughs> you know, to not panic every time I did anesthesia and just all the things that new grads go through. I remember my first allergic reaction and I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, just, just learning, just being so young. But, you know, eventually that time passed thankfully. And about four years in, there was my heart dog that came into my life. I can share a little bit about Sue. She was a, um, I call her the stinky hunt dog. <laughs> she she really was. At, at that point in my career, I was practicing in a rural town in South Carolina and so we saw a lot of hunting dogs mm -hmm. and she was 13 and oh. her, yeah, and her actual owner, I was her later in life owner, <laughs> her actual owner passed away. He was an elderly man. And oh. when, I know, I know. And when he passed, he left behind six animals to all of his kids and I think they were overwhelmed and, and didn't know what to do. And mm -hmm. they saw Sue was 13. So they scheduled an appointment to euthanize her. <sighs> so Sue came in to my practice for that last appointment. And one of my colleagues looked at her and just thought, she still has some life. <laughs> Look at this scrappy old girl. <laughs> And so we asked them if he could find her a home. Aww. And so they were very appreciative and they signed her over and, and we took her on and 
and a star in the cage. And it was love at first sight. So that sneaky hunt dog got to come home and, and live with me. And I don't know if she, you know, lived indoors or outside at that, that point. She didn't act like it, but I made her an indoor dog and we painted her toenails and I got her a tutu and she became a very fancy hunting dog. A very fancy hunt dog. She's a very fancy hunt dog. So I learned everything about her. She's just, just funny. So getting back to my cancer journey and, and treating cancer, about four months in, she had a lump on her right rear thigh. And here's my little um, high horse about it. That lump was soft and it was squishy and freely movable. So what I'm trying to say is that it felt like a lipoma. And when I found it at home, I was like, oh, this is probably a lipoma. Uh-huh. <laughs> but as, as any uh, good general practitioner should do, I aspirated it. And immediately I found out that it was a max cell tumor. Ah, the great pretender that can look like anything it wants to. It looked just like a juicy lipoma. So luckily, my boss at the time, because I didn't want to operate on my own dog, he said, we can remove this today. It took great margins, and we had it biopsied, and it came back as a high-grade, grade-2 mast cell tumor. Mm. And Yeah, I know. It was a bummer. And then at the bottom, I remember the report said, these types of tumors have a mean survival time of about four to five months, which to me wasn't what I wanted to hear. I wanted more. I just got her. She's great. Right. Right. She had a tutu. (laughs) Her nails were barely dry. Her nails were barely dry. So I needed more time. And so once again, I'm very young in my career. And I just remembered this positive experience. We did have a specialty hospital about 40 minutes away. So this was Charleston, South Carolina. So I could have had that resource, but that spark was already there. And I felt like this is something that I can do. And so I started chemo with Sue. This was my first IV chemo patient. We did blasting every week for four weeks, then every other week for four treatments. That girl had no white blood cell abnormalities. Her blood work was perfect the entire time. She had no side effects. She did amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so I felt really good about that. Well, then months later, then all of a sudden her popliteal lymph node was palpable. Mm. And then I did an abdominal. And that's behind the knee? That's right behind the knee. So her Mm -hmm. tumor was on her thigh. And so the popliteal in that same leg got big and juicy. So it was metastasizing at that point. And I did an abdominal ultrasound. And there were her sublumbar lymph nodes, which are these lymph nodes that live right at the bifurcation or the splitting of the aorta. Oh. Um, the aorta being the major, major artery of the body. Yeah. And having lymph nodes there, you know, I didn't feel gutsy to remove those. And so, you know, at that point, oh, at that point. Because they're just so, they're so close to the aorta, removing them would be really, really dangerous, sounds like. Yeah, it can be done for sure. And I've seen it done. I've seen surgeons do it, but it wasn't a choice I wanted to make for Sue. And so my thought process is, well, what do we do now? At that time, this was around 2012-13, and a drug, wonderful drug called Palladia is coming oh. into the picture. Mm-hmm. It was labeled for non-resectable mast cell tumors, and we started at that point, I think we we're talking about kit mutations and, you know, all of those things that are more common language now, but back then it wasn't really discussed, especially amongst the general practitioner community. I contacted an oncologist from the area and and she really was wonderful. And we said, oh, should we do Palladia? Or there's another drug kind of that. And we're going back and forth. And she was like, I think you should do Palladia. So I said, done. (laughs) So I ordered Palladia. And once again, we started it. This lymph node shrank and she just kept trucking along. 
So this whole time she's fine. <laughs> she it sounds like fine. Right. I will say this: if anybody has ever um, used Palladia before, or maybe they're interested in using Palladia, one of the side effects that I saw when I started it that first week. She had incredible leg pain. Hmm. And I think that was just part of the mast cell tumor, you know, being affected by this new drug so much. So for that first week, I was like, oh, is this something that I feel like I can continue? Consulted with oncologists that was so friendly and generous and helping me a lot out along the way. And she was like, okay, we're going to take a vacation, a little break. And then start back and she should be fine. And she never looked back. She did great. So we continued the protocol and that girl lived another couple of years. Oh my goodness. I know. She did great. About six months prior to her passing at the age of 16, she did have an arrhythmia that was so bad that she needed a pacemaker. Oh my goodness. So we brought, I know nobody and nobody in South Carolina did pacemakers. I contacted everybody in Charleston, Greenville, all the bigger cities. There's not a vet school in, in South Carolina. So I contacted university of Georgia and NC state. NC state said, can you come today? And I said, yep. So me and Sue and my husband, Chris drove on up to NC state and they put in a pacemaker, and and once again, she didn't loop back, so. (laughs) That is crazy. Yeah. That is, she was so strong. She was so strong and scrappy, so I always say she's a hard dog just because she started my love for fighting cancer, and because she was so strong, and she did so well with very, very few challenges, I felt like this is something I want to build upon. So that's how it all began. Yeah. What an amazing story. I know there's a lot of people listening who will be thinking a lot about what the possibilities are, especially those with mast cell tumors, but really any cancer diagnosis, you really don't know ahead of time. I mean, a 13-year-old dog, most people would do exactly what Sue's former dad's kids did and sort of say, well, she probably doesn't have that much time left, so why should we put a lot of effort into this. Let's let things take their course or make that choice that they made. All of these are valid choices. But if you're the person who's wondering if she's got something extra, if she's got that little extra bit, give her a chance if you can do it. No regrets. We had no regrets about any of it. Even with the pacemaker, we were at the point where it was, okay, she either has to be euthanized today because she can't live like this. Her heart is going to stop or we have to take this risk with her. And, um, you know, of course, it's expensive. My husband and I were looking at each other like, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) trying to like, are we doing this? And we left and we had, you know, no regrets. So, and I know, you know, it doesn't always turn out as a perfect story for everybody. So I don't want to, you know, paint this like rosy, rosy picture, but it was the right decision for her. And and I'm so thankful that she did so well and, you know, how much she inspired me to continue and do more. So, yeah. Well, thank you. So you started doing chemo with your heart dog, Sue. Yes. And then you continued. Yes. So then right after Sue, we had this three-legged cat named Tucker, He didn't have cancer, but he had a disease called cholangiohepatitis, which is a liver and gallbladder problem where his immune system was attacking his liver and gallbladder. Oh, that sounds very bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. It is. It's not good, but it can be managed. I consulted with an internal medicine specialist, and that specialist gave him one year to live. And we started Chlorian B-cell, which is a chemotherapeutic drug. It's an oral drug, and we gave that as prescribed. And Tucker lived five years with minimal (laughs) side effects. Um, You know, his blood work, other than his liver enzymes being terrible because he had this disease, they never had any consequences from the oral chemo. He never got immunosuppressed. So he too was a rock star that beat all odds. So that only, not only was Sue, but then Tucker, it just reinforced. So 
at that point, it was like, I don't want to say it was like a drug, but it kind of was. I just wanted to learn more and more and more. And so <laughs> I was just investing a lot of time and continuing education and, you know, any kind of certification that I could get, I was, I was doing it. So in oncology, in oncology. Yes. Uh-huh. It was definitely my favorite area. So. Did you ever consider getting board certified, becoming an oncologist? Yes and no. So kind of going back to my vet school career, I graduated at the young age of 26. It sounds so young now. But I know. I'm with you. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> Just the young age of 26. And at that time, if you think about, I'd been in school for 21 years, if you count kindergarten on them. Right. And you know, debt with student loans. And Mm -hmm. I was ready to make a living for myself. I was Mm -hmm. ready to hustle, if you will, and just wanted to get out in the workforce. And so I didn't have any thoughts at the time that I wanted to do an internship or residency because it's four more years of, I probably would have continued those loans and they, you know, they work so hard and, you know, the pay is, um, it's, you know, it's just a very, very modest income for those interns and residents because they're still getting their education. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the right decision for me. So I went out into the workforce, but there's been times since then where, you know, I I just love oncology so much. And if I'm, um, you know, hands deep in a full mouth extraction, removing cat teeth, I'm thinking to myself, wow, (laughs) I sure do wish I was an oncologist right now, (laughs) but that's okay. I mean, I like the variety of general practice, so Mm -hmm. um, no regrets. I love oncologists and, you know, I love having them as a resource, but I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Well, that brings me to something I wanted to talk to you about because I know a lot of, uh, I'm going to get the exact number incorrect. So let's say there are, are over 400 oncologists. Not all of those are small animal oncologists Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so there's something like 60,000 general practitioner vets. So there's many, many more general practitioners than there are oncology specialists. And so especially in the last few years, when the veterinary industry has been undergoing so much change, that affects the ability to give care. I know that at one point last year, at least, there was a six-month average wait to see an oncologist. And six months to wait to see your veterinary oncologist might not be enough time. <laughs> no. And, and some of these pets only have six weeks. Right. You know, our lymphoma dogs, that's it's unacceptable. And I feel so bad for the industry because, you know, they truly are doing the best they can. But there's, of course. there's way more animals that have cancer than oncologists can handle. So that's where I think it is important for general practitioners to be empowered to do as much as they can. I think it is just really hard if, you know, that's the only option. If an animal gets diagnosed with cancer to say, well, there's a six month wait with an oncologist or I'm comfortable dispensing prednisone. There has to be a middle ground where there's things that we can do in the intermediary in order to still fight cancer. And and I think that we can do it well. Right. And you have gotten that feedback from oncologists, correct? That do they resent? Is there a professional resentment that you're taking clients away from them as a general practitioner? I don't think so. I'm sure that there may be a few that may think to themselves, well, maybe y'all should stay in your lane or, but I have not gotten that. I've gotten nothing but positive feedback. One of the things that I think it's very important that I communicate to my clients is that I tell them I am not a board certified oncologist. If you want an oncologist, we're going to make that happen. We're going to refer you, especially now I'm living in a, um, you know, a bigger city than previous places. I do offer that. But I also say, on the other hand, I am very comfortable with doing chemotherapy. Here is my background. Here's my experience. Here's why I love to fight cancer. So this is an alternative if you do not want to go that route. So I feel like anytime I've talked to an oncologist, they've been very, very helpful and they haven't been 
discouraging or, you know, frustrated. And, and I definitely don't feel like they think we're stealing their business. I think they are probably, I would hope, appreciative if we can take those basic boring, not boring, they're not boring to me, but, you know, maybe the ones that are a little more straightforward, like a CHOP protocol or- Mm -hmm. For lymphoma. For lymphoma or just carboplatin for osteosarcoma or just things that are pretty routine or standard or simplistic and just save those big guns, those hard cases, save the ones that really, you know, make you scratch your head or use in drugs that have more side effects, more complications, or just maybe a different perspective. So I would like to hope that they are comfortable with general practitioners doing so as long as they are doing it the right way. And that's what's so important. We have to be doing it to the level that they are doing it. Otherwise, we shouldn't be doing it at all. So, Right. So what are the things that you do in your practice to give chemotherapy to patients that a general practitioner listening or a dog lover listening would want to look for in their general practice to make sure that this is safe for everybody? Because it's not just the dog or the cat, it's you as a practitioner, right? Like you want the humans to be safe in the practice. Absolutely. I mean, you put the nail on the head. Safety is the most important thing, not only for dog safety. Chemotherapeutic drugs have such a narrow margin of safety that you have to get that math correct. You know, for certain drugs like gabapentin or which is we use it for pain and anxiety and sedation in dogs and cats or, you know, an antibiotic or even a pain medication like galoprant or cytopoint. These are all drugs where, you know, we may give the same dose to an animal that's 10 pounds as we do an animal that's 19 pounds or 20 pounds. So there's this huge margin of safety there in a lot of these drugs where we have a range Chemo has to be exact. You can't just round up or willy-nilly or just approximate one cc per 10 pounds or, you know, you can't do that. It has to be done correctly. So one of the ways that I like to be as safe as possible from that aspect is I like a double check system. I like for my technicians to be trained to also do the math. And then I like for both of us to calculate the math and say, this is the dose that we are going to use and we have to match. And if we don't match, then we recalculate. And so by double check system, then I feel like that's one way that we can be as safe as possible. Where do you get those numbers from? Where do you get the numbers to calculate? Yeah, yeah. So as far as the published doses, there's a lot of resources available. My doses came from just my previous experience through LSU. They gave us an oncology drug guide handbook. And, you know, a lot of those haven't changed. Drug handbooks, literature, you know, there's just various resources. So these are all things that a GP can look up and find those published doses. Absolutely. Absolutely. The more experience with chemotherapy, you'll kind of see that, okay, this is really the, this is the the drug dose. And there may be a slight variation, but there's not going to be a huge change in the doses that are given. And so with that being said, so we both calculate, that's the way that we keep the dogs safe. And then the way that we keep people safe is by using safety measures such as PPE, personal protective equipment. And I like to think of that as just like the safety bubble, this uh, <laughs> like a, a shield of armor, if you will, <laughs> or, you know, just making sure that every entry point of the body, like the eyes and the mouth and the nose are all protected by this equipment you know, a face mask and a respirator mask, and then a chemo gown and double gloves or chemo gloves. So just that that shield of armor, you know, that needs to be worn by every single person. Because these compounds are, I mean, they're very potent and effective, but you, if you're healthy, don't want them on your skin. Certainly don't want to ingest them. Yes. Highly frowned upon. 
Because it does go through. It does go through. It's frowned upon. Really frowned Don't bring your McDonald's into the chemo room. <laughs> Don't set it on the counter. Don't just spray it willy-nilly. Bad things can happen because they are considered hazardous drugs. They're dangerous if you are exposed to them chronically in an unsafe way. There's a study, and I don't remember exactly the resource, but they measured healthcare workers who are chronically given chemo over long periods of time. Maybe they weren't wearing the safety equipment. I don't know. I don't know the specifics, but they were actually measuring chemo in their urine. Oh, yeah. 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 And so what we know is that they can cause problems with unborn babies. They can cause cancer. It's hard to believe that, you know, chemotherapy can cause mutations and that can lead to cancer. And so it is so important that we are safe because I don't want to have cancer later on and wonder, was it because I was unsafe? I was lackadaisical and I didn't care. Or I would even be more devastated if one of my teammates got cancer and I put them in harm's way because I was just like, oh, it's just a quick injection or this is no big deal. We can't see this happening in your body. So it'll be fine. Well, I would feel terrible if they got cancer because of something that I didn't do to protect them. So it is of utmost importance that if a general practitioner is doing this, they have got to make sure that they are safe and they have to make sure that their team is safe. And if they don't do, and the doc, by doing correct math (laughs) and double checking, Uh they've got to do those things. Otherwise, they shouldn't be doing them, in my humble opinion. Certainly sounds like there's many good reasons for that. Is there special equipment that you need to administer chemo that, or can a general practice, once they get the personal protective equipment, can they just start doing it? Or is there anything that they'd need to do in their practice to start offering chemo? Yeah, absolutely. The more, the better, the safer you can be. And so a biosafety cabinet is absolutely preferred, which I think in a way, it sounds like it's so unattainable, but at our last practice, we were actually in the process of doing a new construction. So we put in a biosafety cabinet. It was less than $10,000, which that's a lot of money for sure, but it's doable if you are going to not only make sure your staff is safe, that you're safe, it's so worth it and it pays for itself. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very doable thing. So I definitely recommend that that be, you know, an investment, especially if you're going to be doing a lot of chemo. Tell me what that is. It's like a, it's called a hood. You know, you hear it, it be enough hood. Okay. And so you draw up chemo underneath the hood and it sucks all of the bad stuff up and out the building. Oh, okay. So it's it's a giant exhaust system, basically. Exactly. So it's not floating around in the air while you prepare the chemo for a treatment. You're trying to prevent aerosols from forming. And so it just goes up and out. Out of okay. sight. <laughs> so, oh, right. so it's it's a doable thing. It doesn't sound attainable because that's not something. You don't go in every single vet practice and, oh, there's that hood. No, very, very few practices have one. We installed it in my last practice. I just joined a new practice and we're doing a renovation and that one is also going to have a hood. So we've already picked that one out. So it's definitely something. It's that extra safety thing that really should be done. And as guidelines get stricter, there's something called USP 800 guidelines, which are super, super strict. They're, you know, they they want you to do that too. So that's in a hood, if at all possible. If you do not have a hood, there's these wonderful little, they're called closed system transfer devices, which are these little plastic parts that I always imagine that they take the place of needles. So getting rid of needles, they're these little plastic tips that go on the end of the syringe that sit on top of the bottle of chemo mm-hmm. and that also fit on the end of the IV catheter. And it's a system that keeps all of the drug within that system so it's not aerosolized. So it does that. Oh. Yeah. Because if you're drawing chemo out of a vial, you pull that with a needle 
you pull that needle and syringe out, well, there's going to be a little droplet. And then if you're not wearing your shield, then you could intake that. So these systems are in place and there's several brands. I use one that's called a face seal, but there's several brands available. They're very inexpensive. So probably $20 per pet, you know, it may be $3 for this part, $5 for this part, but for, you know, $20 or so, you can get rid of the needles And this device makes it all just one streamlined transfer system that keeps the chemo from being exposed to the air. Because you're drawing the chemo out of the vial it comes in Mm -hmm. into a little syringe that holds the dose that you need to administer to the animal. And so it just keeps that so that it's all safe as it travels from the vial to the dog and is administered at that point. The needle comes on later. Once you're closer to the dog or go, does it go directly into a port? It goes directly into a port. Okay. All no right. needle needed. No needle at all. Needle out. <laughs> okay. I mean, this is so granular, but I feel like this is the kind of thing that, you know, if people are really considering doing chemo in their own practice, they want to know, like, it's possible to really do this safely and to transfer it safely and not put yourself at risk and your clients and patients and team members at risk. Absolutely. And so I learned all about these products just on YouTube. There's so many videos on how to use them. Isn't that incredible? You can literally (laughs) learn how to do anything on YouTube now. Absolutely. So I watched all the videos (laughs) and then bought, you know, we bought a few and I just practiced with saline and then we just got comfortable with it. So never look back. That's wonderful. Yeah. Are there any other safety protocols that people need to keep in mind? As far as for owners after the fact, just not being or handling their urine, their feces, their vomit for about 72 hours, trying to have them go to the potty in a different area, you know, just anything. Now, the amount of chemo that's in their urine or in their feces, it's very, very small. But once again, if you had this chronic exposure willy-nilly, if you will, And then you ended up with cancer years later. I never want anybody to think to themselves, well, it was because I was left day school back in the day. So don't touch it. Just don't do it. Avoid it. Just don't do it. Yeah. What about when you're using an agent like Palladia or Chlorambucil is also given at home sometimes, right? Yeah. So what about those dogs that are on a metronomic protocol? Yeah, I know. It's kind of one of those things that with, um, you know, Sue being on Palladia and I had other dogs. So you try your best. What I can honestly tell you is that two of the dogs that were living with the same time as Sue, they're still with us 10 years later. So they didn't have any, any repercussions from it. You know, so I think you just do your best. For the owners, wearing gloves when giving it, wash your hands afterwards. Anytime Sue would have a mess or what have you, we would clean it up with, you know, gloves. And we just do the best we can. But, you know, it's hard. You can't have them living in a bubble. So just avoid it. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like us in the world. There, We're surrounded by things that could potentially cause cancer. But we just do the best we can and and limit and, you know, and try not to lose a ton of sleep over it. And those lower doses, aren't those lower doses generally than what you would get by injection or intravenous in a clinic? Absolutely. So those metronomic doses are going to be much, much lower. So hopefully that'll also help to minimize risk over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, this is a good place for us to just pause and hear a word from our sponsors. And we'll be back with Dr. Kristen Lester. And I want to ask you about what drug protocols are most likely going to be offered in a general practice setting. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. 
It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. <laughs> no matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good. In this life, and the next, and the next, and the next, I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. If your dog has cancer, you need to get a copy of the best-selling animal health book, The Dog Cancer Survival Guide. Because no matter what you've heard, there are always steps that you can take to help your dog fight and maybe even beat cancer. At nearly 500 pages, this comprehensive guide is your complete reference for practical, evidence-based strategies that can optimize the life quality and longevity of your dog. It's written by two of the most respected names in dog cancer, full-spectrum veterinarian Damian Dressler and veterinary oncologist Susan Ettinger. With the Dog Cancer Survival Guide, you'll learn everything that you need to know about conventional treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, including how to reduce their side effects. You'll also discover the most effective non-conventional options, including nutraceuticals and supplements and diet, as well as mind-body medicine. What I love most about this book, which I've used with my own dog, Kanga, when she was diagnosed with cancer, is how to analyze the options and develop a specific plan for your own dog based on your dog's type of cancer and your dog's age, your financial budget, as well as your personality. You can get the Dog Cancer Survival Guide wherever books are sold, but if you get it direct from the publisher, you will save 10% when you use the offer code, especially for listeners of this podcast. Just go to dogcancerbook.com, and when you check out, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will save 10%. The website again, dogcancerbook.com, and use the promo code PODCAST to save 10%. I want to let you know about an important newsletter. It's called Dog Cancer News. Now, with a name like that, it is not for everyone. But if your dog has cancer, you will want to subscribe. That's because every issue features articles that will be helpful, such as low-carb dog cancer diet recipes, new clinical trials, financial resources to help pay for cancer care, information on supplements, and lots of other helpful info that your veterinarian may not know or have the time to share with you. Also, when you subscribe to Dog Cancer News, you will get a weekly update on the topics covered on this podcast, along with links and resources. So how much does Dog Cancer News cost? Well, today, you can subscribe for free. It's our gift. For a limited time, you can get a full year subscription for free. No strings attached. Just go to this website to sign up for the newsletter now, dogcancernews.com. It takes less than 10 seconds to subscribe, and it is totally free. Do it now at dogcancernews.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back with Dr. Kristen Lester. Dr. Lester, so you've been talking about being a general practice vet and offering oncology services to your clients. What are the types of cancers or protocols that you feel most comfortable 
offering to your clients and which would you tend to refer out? So I think it is going to be an individual preference, what their experiences are. And over the years, I've kind of collected a repertoire of what I call like the common ones that, you know, like, for example, I will treat a dog with lymphoma with CHOP. I will do that. Osteosarcoma and the use of carboplatin, still very comfortable using that drug. Then blasting for mast cell tumors. Obviously, that was my first one. So, right, right. you know, that's your heart drug. That's my heart drug. That's my <laughs> first one. <laughs> then blasting's the best. <laughs> So, I mean, really all of the ones that are what I consider the workhorse drugs. These are the ones that you see time and time again. Lomastine, that's an oral drug. Chloramucil, that's an oral drug. All of those I feel very, very comfortable with. I think the ones that maybe I would shy away from, there's a drug called mustergen that can have some very, very um, scary, or it's scary to me. I just don't have experience with it, but something that a dog that may have CHOP and maybe has gone through a couple of rounds of CHOP and then now we're no longer responding to those drugs, I may recommend a referral at that point. Or at least phone a friend and contact an oncologist and say, hey, anything else that I can provide, especially if that client doesn't, you know, want to go to an oncologist for whatever reason. So Mm -hmm. definitely phone those friends as much as I can or need to. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. What's the difference from your point of view of seeing your GP versus going to see an oncology specialist for the dog lover listening? So I think that there's pros and cons of both for sure. You know, pro going to an oncologist is that that's all they do all day, every day. They have years and years of training and research, and they could probably do all of those things in their sleep. They're used to those conversations, and they're used to managing side effects because it is an all day, every day thing. So there's expertise there that's viable. I think a con would be cost. You know, it's going to be more expensive for sure. They're specialists. They can charge more. And that's definitely allowed and understood. Um, the other thing is proximity. You know, they may not have an oncologist within. I know my first job, I was an hour from Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, my second job, I was three hours away from Dallas. So this not a practical feat for somebody to drive three hours to do chemo on their pet once a week for four months. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, that is a disadvantage is maybe proximity. Gas prices. Driving three hours is not just about the time. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. It becomes a deal breaker for a lot of people, for most people. I mean, like I said, right now I live in a, a busy city, so we do have a couple of oncologists here. But for the majority of my career, I haven't lived in the same town as an oncologist. So it's, you know, if we weren't doing it, then who would? Right. So the pros and cons of oncology, what are the pros and cons of seeing your general practitioner? Are they all sort of reversed? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I think the pro for a general practitioner that does chemo well, that does it responsibly and safely, is that they're going to know your pet. Mm. You know, they're going to have that warm personal touch because they've been seeing your pet for quite a while and they know maybe a little bit about what you like to do on the weekends or they may know, you know, what is the funny things that your dog does or that he ate a foreign body last year and that was right. dramatic. Or, <laughs> yeah. They're gonna, they might have a sense of how strong your pet is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or what your mm-hmm. pet looks like or seems like when they are sick. Mm -hmm. I love that. When I know a dog or a cat well enough to where I can walk in and say, oh, something's wrong. This is not how Fluffy behaves. This is not how my dog's Jeffrey. This is not how Jeffrey behaves. Jeffrey's sick. I love that because that is just another level. You know those people and they are and they become like your family. What I can honestly say is that my client's that I manage 
their pet's cancer, they almost become friends slash family. You know, they become part of, of my world. You know, I take pictures of them. We become Facebook friends. We, you know, it just becomes a whole level of, of community there. So that is very, very valuable. I think that, you know, location, most of our clients are within, you know, 30 minute drive. And so it's not a hard thing to bring their pet once a week. It's a lot easier. And then finally, it is going to be less expensive. So just the the nature of general practice is going to be less than specialty. So yeah, well, that's all very reasonable and honorable. And it sounds like there's enough work to go around. So if general practitioners are listening and they're interested in offering chemotherapy services to their own clients, where do they start? What do you suggest? Yeah, so I think that the from a safety standpoint, a good place to start is the AHA. It's AHA 2016 Oncology Guidelines. Okay. They really go through very nicely how to wear the PPE, the personal protective equipment well and you know the type of hood and you know I think I think it talks about the hood there maybe maybe not so correct me if I'm wrong but it gives you a nice basic guideline for doing it safely and how to communicate YouTube videos on the facio um, learn how to use those uh, protector connector injectors um <laughs> We'll try to find some to put in the show notes for people. Absolutely. I would love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I think they're all on humans. I think all the videos I watched are humans, but I know that there are plenty of oncology videos that have been published in the veterinary community. If you if you look carefully, you can see that they are too using the closed transfer <laughs> delivery system. So um But anyway, and then continuing education. There are so, so many opportunities. Like I said, I started out, there was a lovely weekend course all about oncology, all about chemo. You know, it was like 15 or 20 hours of just sitting there and learning all about oncology. It's a vet folio, four-hour, you know, not accreditation, but just like an extra badge of honor, this certification that you can get just by learning all about chemo. There's so many different resources on even Facebook. There's a veterinary oncology information group where you will have people that post cases and say, what should I do? And there are several board certified oncologists that will respond and give advice through that Facebook group. So isn't that great? I imagine that's that's only for DVMs. It's not for lay people. I know that you do have to ask for permission, uh-huh. but I don't know if they would, because I think a lot of LVTs get on there. I'm sure that there's probably some guidelines, but hopefully, you know, nobody's in there heckling or <laughs> I think they are monitored pretty closely, but, but yeah, so there's so many resources. And then finally, utilize telemedicine. There's several companies that they make a living by supporting boarded specialists that will get online and give advice to general practitioners that need it. And so I've utilized them several times. If I've had a hard case, I've said, hey, they'll look over my biopsy samples. They'll look over all of my staging. They'll look over what I've done. And then they will give their advice. And I've even had them type up protocols for me and say, here's the protocol that I would use. They charge a small fee and then that fee gets passed along to the client. I ask the client's permission. I say, hey, you don't want to go see an oncologist but I can do telemedicine with an oncologist. Would you want to pursue this? And they, you know, not times out of 100, they'll say, heck yeah, we'll do that. And that's you consulting with the oncologist. Exactly. So the, the dog lover doesn't actually get involved and they don't have to coordinate that. They don't have to do anything. You take care of all of that and then pass the fee on. That's, exactly. That's really good service. It's a great service. It's a 30-minute conversation with an oncologist that gives you their take on it, and even gives you a little bit of, you know, love and support. They have been very, very supportive when I've done that and haven't given me any kind of 
judgment or scoffing or, you know, Mm -hmm. unsupport. They're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's fight cancer. So yes, the oncologists that I know all have that attitude. Let's do it. Let's fight (laughs) cancer. There's always something that can be done. So there's always something. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we'll put links to some of those services in the show notes and we'll put as many links as possible so people can continue to explore And I just want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your amazing stories and your experience, because I know that a lot of people wonder about this. Can't my GP do this? And so hopefully, hopefully this will inspire some GPs to explore this a little bit, because I think there's a lot who want to be able to offer services that maybe right now they're not able to for whatever reason. So it's good to get more people on board. Yeah. And if anybody needs a, a pet talk or, you know, cause I will have young associates that know that I'm passionate about it and they'll contact me and say, Hey, you know, can I do this? And I'm like, yep, come on, let's do it. And so if anybody needs a little pet talk, then feel free to reach out. Oh, so. Okay, great. Yeah. You can find Dr. Kristen Lester through her profile page on our website on dogcancer.com. Dr. Lester, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Molly. It was a blast. And um, thank you for for hosting me today. So hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you come back. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you, friend, for listening. That was such a lovely conversation with Dr. Kristen Lester. And I so appreciate her coming on the show and sharing her experience with chemotherapy. Somehow she just made it all sound kind of like fun. (laughs) And I hope that inspires some of the veterinarians I know listen to think about possibly learning more and maybe even adding it as a service because we all know that while not every dog lover chooses chemotherapy, to treat their dog's cancer, probably more would if it were more convenient, affordable, and close by. So if you're a dog lover listening, it doesn't hurt to ask your veterinarian if they or another general practice vet in the area offers chemotherapy services for your dog. Please join us on dogcancer.com where you'll see Dr. Kristen Lester as a contributor along with many other veterinarians sharing their expertise and their genuine passion for helping animals, including and especially yours. I'm Molly Jacobson, and from all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'm wishing you and your dog a very warm aloha. Thank you for listening to Dog Cancer Answers. If you'd like to connect, please visit our website at dogcancer.com or call our listener line at 808-868-3200. And here's a friendly reminder that you probably already know. This podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only. It's not meant to take the place of the advice you receive from your dog's veterinarian. Only veterinarians who examine your dog can give you veterinary advice or diagnose your dog's medical condition. Your reliance on the information you hear on this podcast is solely at your own risk. If your dog has a specific health problem, contact your veterinarian. Also, please keep in mind that veterinary information can change rapidly. Therefore, some information may be out of date. Dog Cancer Answers is a presentation of Maui Media in association with Dog Podcast Network. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.